so, Lord, that's the cry of our heart and of our voices, that you would be blessed. You're great. We want to spend some time today bragging about you and we acknowledge from the beginning that there are there are things in the way of that worry busyness doubt shame distraction so we take the bundle of our week lord the glory and the awfulness and we present it to you and somehow we ask that you would make it whole and cleanse it and a pleasing sacrifice. Oh Lord, we bring all that we know of ourselves and we bring it to all that we know of you this morning. We break open our chests and we ask that you would massage your truth in. That we would hear today about your people and your work among your people and who you are in and through your people and who we are. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. If you've been coming for the last two or three weeks, I haven't been here because my wife Diane and I have been on vacation. But, you know, Diane and I are at the point in our spiritual development and maturity where even when we're on vacation, we try to do some serious spiritual work. So we did some investigating, some research, and some meditating this week um, just to kind of push our spiritual lives forward. So one of the things that we were meditating on is, is it better to put your chair so that the waves just lap your feet, or do you want to be in so that they actually hit your waist, uh, waves come in? And even more vexing is the question, when you fall asleep, how do you get someone else from stealing your Pringles? And I need you to know that the research is still out on those two things. There's much more meditating and prayer that needs to be done. Okay, so today is going to be, I hope, an important reminder for some of you. For others of you, this might be a new way to think about things. And you might be tempted to think that I'm overstating the case today, but I don't think I am. I've prayed that God would use this lesson to inspire us with the possibilities of what he wants for us. So we're continuing our series of messages that we call Endure, and it's just walking our way through 1 Peter, and today we're going to be looking at maybe the most important passage in the entire Bible about us, about who we are and what we do. It's a really short paragraph, it's two verses, but it's epic. So today, this is about us. So let's go old school. Stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. I'm going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God or a people of God's possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. 
Okay, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, and we're reading through the New Testament as a congregation here at Gateway, if you're reading through the New Testament, this is the first time in our year of reading through the New Testament where our passage has lined up with our Sunday morning. So you read this passage this week, and I hope when you read this passage, you walked away with the impression, one of the things that you and I should walk away with when we read this section of Scripture, this paragraph, one of the things we should walk away with is the impression that the church is a stinking big deal. Many years ago, I had a summer job. I worked in Winston-Salem, North Carolina for a little outfit called Salem Steel. And Salem Steel, as best I understand it, what they did is, you know, they didn't make steel, but they would take these medium, small, and large steel beams, and by certain specs and certain designs, they would form them into structures that would be used in buildings or bridges or whatever. So they would get a contract, they'd get you know, a schematic a system of designs, and, and then they would get beams shipped into Salem Steel, and Salem Steel, with big machines, would put those beams together, and sometimes with welders in the, in the smaller places, they would weld them together, again, according to design, put them on giant beds, ship them out, and, you know, they'd be used in buildings or bridges. And the summer that I was there, you're going to wonder why I remember so much detail about this, you'll hear in a minute, the summer that I was there, Salem Steel had a contract with the state of Pennsylvania to build the support structures for Interstate 80. You're going to think twice about taking Interstate 80 after I tell you this story. Anyway, so we're putting together these substructures for the bridges on Interstate 80. And during the week of July 4th, that's of course the time when everybody who's a regular worker at Salem Steel wants to take off. So the, the summer workers, they say, we'll pay you double time and a half if you work, sign me up. So I sign up for the week of July 4th and I'm working double shift sometime, double time and a half, making good money during that week. A big part of the order comes in and they're short of welders. So they say to a group of us, any of you willing to weld for a few days. Of course, I'm willing to weld. So they spent the morning teaching us how to lay a welding bead, and I'm learning how to weld. I'm not very good, but I'm learning. And at a certain point, you know, there's a place high up, a little joint, they need someone to go up. Weld, Alan, are you willing to go up? Yes, because I'm incredibly cool and I'm brave. And I go up, and I, I'm up there with my helmet on, thinking how awesome am I, laying a welding beak, and it takes a while, but I hear someone down below, hey, you, and finally, I look down, it's, you know, it's quite a ways down, hey, who are you? We've never seen you before. Oh, you know, I'm me. Oh, okay. Are you a welder? No, heck no. <laughs> Wait, well, what are you doing? Oh, they showed me this morning. I'm just up here welding. These guys had on these hats, and I had no idea what, I had no idea what that meant or who they were. I, cont I continued to lay welding beads, not realizing that these were people from the government whose job was to make sure that the work environment was safe and it met specifications. And I didn't realize that when you did a government job for the federal government or for a state, Every welder had to have a very sophisticated certification. So when I said, heck no, they just showed me this morning, these guys with the white hats went nuts. 
The next day, I walked into work. There was a big meeting for the whole plant. I don't have any idea what's going on. We go to this place where all of us are together. We go to the big meeting. CEO of Salem Steel stands up and says, somehow someone yesterday was welding who's not a certified welder. OSHA caught us. By the way, OSHA came here. We didn't know. It was a surprise inspection. OSHA caught us. And the entire job from uh, Interstate 80 has to be brought back to Salem Steel, every joint undone and re-put together. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I remember this story. <laughs> you know, nobody ever said anything to me about it. I spent the rest of the summer hoping that no one would talk to me. I don't know if everybody knew that it was me, but I suspect that they did. You know what I learned that day, among other things? I learned that the people in those white hats are a stinking big deal. They can make stuff happen in almost exactly the same way, really. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 tells us that the church is a stinking big deal. We often don't think of it that way. We sometimes don't even recognize it. Sometimes we're pretty casual about our church involvement. Oh, we ought to go check that church out. That one up there on, you know, Tall Cedars. They built a couple of years ago. I think we should go to church this morning. We haven't been in a few weeks. You know, on average, we right now are going to church 1.6 times a month. That's those of us who are very involved. That's not the people who come on Christmas and Easter. That's the very involved. That's those of you who really feel connected nationally, the United States. I suspect in Northern Virginia, if we excel in any direction, it might be lower. Fifteen years ago, we used to come 2.4 times a month. Fifteen years before that, it was over three times a month, where the people who were actively involved in church came to church. We have forgotten that church is a stinking big deal. We often don't think of it that way. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter, first of all, well, he does three things for us in this one paragraph. First of all, he tells us the nature of the church, and it's power-packed. The second thing he does is he gives us part of the purpose of the church. And this might be the most important part of the purpose of the church because it's repeated throughout the New Testament. The third thing he does is he gives us a brief elevator speech description of the story of the church, who we are and how we get here. So first, the nature. What is the church? Is it a place with stained glass windows? Not so much anymore. Is it a building with a huge cross on top? It's an institution. It's a gathering where I go punch my clock sometimes on Sunday morning. Is it an organization that wants all your money? What is the church? Peter gives us four dynamic, rich phrases that capture the essence of what the church really is, as well as nearly any passage in the New Testament. I think better. So the first thing he says is that you, we, are a chosen people. Chosen, selected, picked out. This is not an accident. He used this word chosen, by the way, twice already in the paragraph just before this section that Alex talked about last week. In uh, chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus is the living stone who's chosen and precious. And then he repeats the same thing again, doesn't he? He can't say it enough. Two verses later, verse 6, for in Scripture it says, now he quotes the Old Testament, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone and one that trusts in him will never be put to shame last year if you're involved in gateway you may remember this diane and my wife diane 
and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. Thank you, Gateway. You sent us to Israel. Thank you. And it was, it was epic. One of the things that you notice about Israel, if you go, and you can Google, just do Google Images and you'll see this, but the impact of it live and on the ground is like, wow, you, you can't get it from pictures. There are rocks everywhere. You know, they tell the joke in the Middle East that God distributed three giant bags of rocks to be distributed across the whole globe, and two of them broke over the Middle East. There are rocks It's just covered with rocks. You could pass hillsides. You can't even see dirt or grass for all of the rocks and stones. Pebbles all the way up to giant boulders. And in an atmosphere like that, obviously, you build with stone. And it's pretty easy to build walls and homes and larger buildings because there's just so much stone everywhere. But if you want that building to stand... You have to do the same thing that we do here in Northern Virginia in a different way. Some of you built your home, right? And you may remember during the building process, you drive out there every day. You know, we're going out to Stone Ridge to see our home is being built. And you couldn't believe it. And they, and they broke ground. And then it just seemed like it took forever. It was just a hole in the ground, remember? And they spent so much time pouring the foundation. Hello, because the whole thing is built on the foundation. That's why. The foundation stone, the cornerstone is so critical to them in any building. So of the millions of rocks, they would scour the landscape looking for exactly the perfect rock that had very nearly the right size, right composition, so that they could transport it, bring it to their location, and lay it down as the cornerstone because the entire building was going to rise around and function on top of that cornerstone, that foundation, the precious chosen stone. Peter is saying, Jesus is that stone, spiritually, for your life and for us, for for this thing, for Gateway. In 2.5, chapter 2, verse 5, he expands on the analogy, doesn't he? He says, we're like living stones that are laid on top of that cornerstone. This precious stone chosen stone actually acts in two ways. You'll see it here. The stone, that stone, that precious cornerstone, it can be two things. One, it can be a foundation. It can also be a place of stumbling. You see that? Some people don't recognize the significance of it, and for them, the stone becomes a stumbling block. Some people are destined to perish, he says, because they don't see the significance of this stone. So they will never be part of God's building, but not us. Not us. We are chosen. We've been selected out of the whole hillside. We've been selected to lay on top of that cornerstone. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. We are a priesthood. Some of you grew up in Catholic families where the priest was a pretty big deal. You kind of get the sense of how shocking this might have been to the system of the first readers for Peter. Usually in Protestant circles, priests are not that big a deal. I I felt really special this week. We came back from vacation. We're having camp go on during the week for both preschoolers and for elementary kids. The elementary kids' camp is all day. So I I parked out back. I came up the back way down the preschool hallway, went up, and the elementary kids were upstairs. I'm minding my own business. This is me walking. I walk by the classroom up there, and I hear one of the little kids go, Ah, Pastor Ed is back, which made me think, you got to be kidding me. Some family was just 
talking about how awesome I am, and, and away on vacation, and this kid notices me back, and I'm feeling really special, and then I hear another little kid say, who's Pastor Ed? <laughs> so the point here is not that I'm a big deal. We know that's not the case. We are. We are. We are a royal priesthood. Priests are the people that serve as instruments of connection and intersection between God and human beings. Did you get that? Priests offer and mediate the presence of God to others, and they take the concerns of others to God. That's what we do, all of us. Even more shockingly, Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. You know, as Americans, we don't have royalty. We have sports stars and entertainers. It's not the same. But I think we kind of understand royalty because of our, you know, cousins, the British. We're fascinated by their weddings and their births. We love to watch The Crown on Netflix and Victoria. We read about them in our gossip magazines. And, and this would have been an even more powerful image for Peter's first readers. Peter is saying, hey, that royalty that you hear about, they are a million miles removed from you, right? You can never get anywhere near that. You know, Caesar, that's who you are. You're in that family. And remember, he's saying this to people who were born on the wrong side of the tracks, by and large. His readers were socially disenfranchised, we've learned as we've worked our way through this. This is not, don't miss this, this is not how they felt about themselves. But this is the reality of who they were. And that's what Peter's trying to remind them of. And this is the reality of their potential impact. This is who they were, and it's who we are. Third, we are a holy nation. Let's face it, different nationalities are known by their different stereotypes. If you are a Native American, or if you're from India, or if you are originally Chinese, or if you're from East Africa or Central Africa, or if you're from South America, if you don't know what the rest of the world's stereotypes are about you, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means that you don't know them. So there's even a Wikipedia page, I kid you not, devoted to national stereotypes. I won't tell you some of them, they're too embarrassing. But I thought this was interesting. This page quoted an article from the British publication, The Guardian, entitled European Stereotypes. Evidently, a survey was conducted among many Europeans in which they were asked what they thought of one another. <laughs> this is what they said. The British are thought of as, quote, drunken semi-clad hooligans or, quote, snobbish, stiff free marketers. The French are known as, quote, cowardly, arrogant, chauvinistic, and erotomaniacs. I had to look that word up. It means they think everybody's in love with them. End quote. Germans were viewed as, quote, uber-efficient, diligent, and disciplined. End quote. Italians were seen as, quote, tax-dodging, Berlusconi-style Latin lovers and mama's boys incapable of bravery. That's a quote. <laughs> Poland is, quote, heavy-drinking, ultra-Catholics with a whiff of anti-Semitism. End quote. And Spain. Spain is known as, quote, Macho men and fiery women prone to regular siestas and fiestas. <laughs> End quote. 
Not surprisingly, some of the countries radically disagreed with their, the stereotypes of themselves. They thought they were wildly wrong. Regardless of what country you come from, your citizenship is now in the kingdom of God. You're in the church. This is our culture now. These are our stereotypes. You're part of the church, and as such, the stereotype concerning you, or at least it should be, is that you are holy. We are a holy nation. If you're part of Gateway, you've heard me do this ad nauseum, but this word holy is one of the most important words in the Bible, so I've got to tease this a little bit. The word holy primarily means three things. First of all, it means that we are set apart for special uses. The second thing it means is that we are utterly unique. In fact, that's really probably the primary meaning, that we're utterly unique. I've described it before like this. I want you to imagine a giant category that has 10,000 subcategories, and each of those 10,000 subcategories has thousands and thousands of sub-subcategories, and you fill in each of those categories with things like amoeba and rocks and chairs and mic and air and lights and screens and trees and picnic benches and men and, and women and carbon and planets and moons and etc. All of it goes here in this one giant category. And over here is another category all by itself and God. That's what holy means. Utterly unique. And the characteristics that apply over here have now been massaged into our lives. The third definition is moral purity. We're good people. We're a holy nation. Fourth, Peter says that we are a people belonging to God, or this phrase can be translated a people of his own possession, because the word translated belonging to here means, listen to this, preserving, saving, keeping, or obtaining something for oneself. God has done a mighty work to keep and preserve and obtain and get us for himself. When I was younger, I I played basketball regularly, and this was right after the game was invented. And, you know, this was day and age when you would just go to the store and just buy a pair of high-top Converse and throw them on to go play basketball. And I can't remember this high school or college. I don't remember the period of time. But this is when they first started making kind of like cool designer shoes. And I was too cheap to buy cool designer shoes, so I would still go and buy Converse. But I went one day to a tennis store outlet with a friend of mine, and there's a wall of these newer shoes, Adidas and Nike shoes and even Converse shoes, and they were, I'm telling you, they were cool. And I saw a pair of shoes that jumped off the shelf at me. They spoke to, they said, Ed, buy us. It was weird. It was a spiritual experience. And I realized that, first of all, they were cool. Secondly, they were sexy. Let's face it. And thirdly, I knew that if I wore these shoes, I would be cool and sexy. It didn't turn out that way, but that's what I I thought anyway. And I also knew if I put these shoes on, it doesn't matter how good I am, people are going to think I'm good, which is the point. So I bought these shoes, and they were very, very special. I had a place in my closet just for these shoes. I only wore these shoes to play basketball. Nope, nay, you say, not just to play basketball, only to play basketball on wooden courts. 
I wouldn't even play basketball outside on concrete with these shoes. They were so special. I remember one time when I was in college, a friend of mine had the same shoe size as I did. We were going to go do something one day. He had no shoes. Can I borrow your shoes? What? This was utterly unthinkable, shocking. No, you cannot. I'll, I'll wrap your sh- feet in sheets or something. No, you cannot borrow my shoes because those are my, those are my basketball shoes. Peculiar possession. We are a people belonging to God. Special place in the corner of the closet for us. He brings us out at the most important occasions when he needs to show the world what he's like. When he needs the world to hear, hey world, God is great. Next he talks about our purpose. And he addresses one of the primary purposes of the church in in the whole Bible. He says, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may declare the excellencies of his excellencies, the greatness of what he's done. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but let's be quick here. You know, a lot of ink, stay with me on this, this is weirdly interesting, a lot of ink has been spilled by scholars over the years debating whether or not this phrase refers to missionary preaching or to worship. So in other words, there's a difference between declaring the praises by saying, God, you're so great, which is worship, or saying, hey world, God is great, which is missionary preaching. But we have to agree with those voices who say that surely Peter means both, doesn't he? It's part of the purpose of the church to tell God and to remind one another that God is great. That's why we do this on Sunday morning. That's why I talk. That's why we stand up here and sing. That's why you stand up and think, I've never heard that song before, but I'll try. Or some of you, oh, I really like that song. We sing that to one another. What's the song? How great is our God? Yes, thank you, Rebecca. That's why we sing songs like that. Because this is us saying God is great, but the church also looks at the world around us, people who are far from God, who are deep in need, and says, hey world, God is great. All right, pause. Let's back up a minute. I'm going to remember the central theme of this whole letter. It's endurance. And these original readers were facing very hard times. We've talked about that a little bit. We'll talk about it more. Even persecution. How did they make it through? And this is where we live. This is where we're going to live on Tuesday because some of us are are facing tough times and we all will soon. Peter seems to be saying that part of the way you make it through difficulty is by remembering who you are and by remembering why you're here. Look, I mean this in the most practical way possible. When I'm facing difficulty, I have to remind myself, I'm part of the church, and that's a stinking big deal. And I'm here to declare the greatness of God. The final thing Peter does is he gives us a condensed version of our story. He gives us the elevator speech. I want to read the entire section to lead up to this, but I especially want you to pay attention to verse 10. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And now the elevator speaks. Once you were not a people, 
but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Okay, one of the most difficult things for us to see when we read the Bible is how saturated it is with corporateness. Some of you come from different cultures outside of the United States. This is more natural to you internally. It is not for us. In the ancient world, they didn't think about themselves primarily as individuals. They didn't ask, what do you do? They asked, who are you related to? Not only does the New Testament not undo this cultural value, that's key, because the New Testament is not afraid. Jesus and his followers are not afraid to speak prophetically to their culture, but they, not only do they not undo this cultural value, they lean into it heavily. In fact, you can't understand the ministry of Jesus unless you get this value. And this value is very, very foreign to suburban northern Virginians. We are the most obsessive individualists in the history of the world, and I don't mean that as in hyperbole. We must hold this truth because it's who we are. Once we were not a people, but now we are. Once we were outside, but now we've been drawn in. I've been included in God and with you. And my attachment is my inclusion to God and to his activity and to the church. Once I was trying to make things happen as best I could. I thought things relied on my effort and my performance. When I did well, I felt pretty good. When I did poorly, I felt very poorly indeed. But now I've received mercy. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. In fact, I deserve something else entirely. But instead of being given what I deserved, I've been given something priceless, immeasurably valuable, and chosen. So what does this, all this mean? Why is it important? Two things. First of all, listen. The church is a stinking big deal to you and me. The church is a big deal to you and me. First of all, it satisfies our design. We need a posse. We were made for it. We need a spiritual posse. We need a connection. Remember, we were made in the image of God. And God is, from the beginning, the original community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is a relationship. We were made for the church. It's part of our design. This is why Jesus talks so much about love. Love is the lubricant that oils the engine of connection and community. Love makes church possible. Church satisfies our design. We are a people. We are a nation. We are a culture. We are a thing. And church offers and defines our purpose that we might declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Don't snooze on that. Church offers us and defines our purpose. A few weeks ago, in our staff time here at Gateway, we talked about productivity because I'm being serious now, all joking aside. It's important to us that we are wise stewards of the resources that God has given us and of our resources that we share together. And we want to be productive in the use of that. So we talked about productivity, and one of the things that we did in that discussion was we watched a couple of TED Talks. 
One of the TED Talks was by a guy named Dan Pink, and he did a, a TED Talk called The Puzzle of Motivation. So if you watch it later, it's really great. I'm sorry, spoiler alert. So Dan Pink says that in American business today, we get this completely wrong, completely wrong. And counter to decades of social science research that's demonstrated the same thing over and over again, and still, as American businesses, we don't get it. And here's the thing we don't get. We are not motivated. I'm not talking about church now. I'm talking about all of us. We are not motivated by extrinsic forces, forces outside of ourselves. You know what? To a certain point, we need our financial needs met. I'm sorry, Northern Virginians. There'll be a gasp here. But after our needs are met, we are not motivated by financial incentives. And the research on it is abundantly clear. I could give you reams of research, but let me tell you the coolest one. This, I know, this was awesome. There's an old problem that was developed by social scientists in the 1950s called the candle problem. And they've used this problem with a number of different angles to demonstrate different things. Let me tell you the candle problem first. So they, they bring participants in the research into a lab, and in the lab there's a table up next to a wall. And on the table is just a shallow box that's full of thumbtacks. So there's a bunch of thumbtacks, and then there's a candle on the table and a box of matches. And the assignment is attach the candle to the wall without light it and wax not drop on the table. So some people, you know, try various solutions. They try to put tacks all around the candle and get the tacks to hold up the candle. Candle falls over, doesn't work. Some really creative people try to burn the candle get a little stream of wax, stick the candle to the wall with the wax, hope that it stays. It doesn't. It will eventually fall off. The solution is dump the thumbtacks out of the box, put the box up next to the wall, thumbtack the box to the wall, and put the candle in the box, and then light the candle. So they decided that they would use this problem to test motivation. So they got a group of social scientists from Harvard. They divided them in half. And to half the group, they brought them in and said, candle problem, here's the situation, here's what you've got to do. Those of you who are in the top 20% of solving this problem in the shortest period of time, we're going to give you $5. This was 1961, $5 meant something. The person who solves this problem the fastest, going to give you $25. To the other group, they said, here's the candle problem, Go. No incentive whatsoever. And to everyone's shock and amazement, the group that was incentivized with $5 and $25 averaged three and a half minutes slower than the group that had no financial incentive whatsoever. Based on this and a ton of other research, Dan Pink draws the conclusion that we are not motivated by external Stimuli, we are motivated primarily by three things. First of all, we're motivated by autonomy. We kind of want control over what we do. Secondly, we're motivated by mastery. We want to know what we're doing and we want to get better at it. And then third and primarily, we are motivated by pause for dramatic effect. Purpose. We want to know. We need to know deep in our bones that what we're doing matters to something, that it makes a difference. This is why, don't snooze yet, this is why some of us feel stuck. This is why some of us 
can't get released from the spiritual or emotional or career doldrums that we're in. We don't have purpose. We've lost the narrative. We've forgotten the why. I'm going to make a big statement here, but I don't think it's overstated. We have forgotten, many of us, that the church is a stinking big deal. It offers and defines our purpose. The church is a stinking big deal for us. Second major point, the church is a stinking big deal to God. He chose us. He put us in place. There is no other arrangement that could have brought us together. And this is not accidental. There is no way that Greg and Rebecca and Laura and I ended up in a room moving in the same direction. It doesn't happen. Except because of this. Because of God's work. Because of God saying, I want that stone right here because it fits perfectly. Furthermore, let's suppose God wants to offer Himself to the world. And He does. Let's suppose that God wants to be in a real relationship with human beings like you and me. And He does. How does He do that? How does He offer Himself to the world? Well, He offers Himself through His priests. Through His royal priesthood. Through the church. Through us. Let's suppose God wants human beings to know what He's like. And He does. Let's suppose God wants His character to be seeable. And He does. How does He do that? How does He make Himself visible? Well, He makes Himself visible through His nation. Through His people. The ones who belong to Him. Through the church. Let me end with this. You know, on an average Sunday morning, let me take that back. Let's be honest. On an average of 1.6 times per month on a Sunday morning, we wake up and we think, let's go to church. Or maybe we decide on Saturday, those of us who are like super way ahead, we think, let's go to church. And we come in and we show up and we sit down at Gateway or somewhere like Gateway. And what happens for us? Well, most of the time, I'm being generous probably, but most of the time, it's pretty good, right? You know, Nate's playing and Rebecca's singing and how great is our God and somebody around us can actually sing and we're thinking we sound pretty good. We don't, but we're fooled into thinking that we do. And it's okay. And we, oh, I really like this song. Ah, that line really moves me. And, you know, there's actually a little twinge for us. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just interesting. Or the third song, we like, I've never heard that song before. And we're drifting off. And Tuesday, stinking Tuesday, I got that meeting. I got it. Oh, ah, uh, sing me how great is it. But we're doing our best. And uh, then... Pastor Ed gets up and he prays and there's a moment there and we think, yeah, I agree. Me too. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all speak to one another. 
and then we go stand up and speak to one another. And it's warm, and we got to meet a couple of folks. Come up, a couple of us are introverted, so we just move around quickly with purpose, hoping nobody will notice and we don't speak to anybody. And then we come back to our seat, and we sit down, but it was okay. And the room is kind of warm, and then Pastor Ed gets up and he talks, and it's, it's all right. And we might feel a moment or two of inspiration, and it's good. It is good. Well, I mean, you know what I mean. We walk away, and good for us, and good for us. Here's the thing. Once in a while, we sense His presence, don't we? Once in a while, oh, it hits. Something real. Or once in a while, we're walking around, and we say to someone, how are you? And they tell us. And it's a real moment. And we get to offer the peace of the Lord. Or once in a while, something is said and it hits our bones. And if you're not here, you miss it. Look, I want to acknowledge, when I'm saying church is a big deal, I don't mean us meeting is a big deal. Although it is. Because it's a part of what we do. Gosh, you never know when you're going to miss that moment. 1.6, can I be a little harsh? 1.6 doesn't cut it. It's too big a stinking deal for that. It really is. And then your connection with your posse outside of this. Oh, it's too important. It's too big a stinking deal to let it go and be casual about it. Church is a stinking big deal to us. Church is a stinking big deal to God. Let's pray. So Lord, we come before you this morning as a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people that you have obtained and preserved and are saving for yourself. And we've come together so that we might say, you're great, and what you do is great, and what you've done in us this week is great. And so that we might be inspired to go tell our neighbors, hey, God is great. Lord, we get it. Our quick story is once we were not a people, we were outside, we were disconnected, but now we're the people of God. Once we made it up, we did our best, it was all about us and our effort, now we've received mercy. And we're so thankful. Honestly, God, I want to pray in particular for those people who are standing on the fence of church. Lord, I pray we'll dive in. It's a big stinking deal. For all of us, God, I pray for the next step forward. For some of us, an inch. For others of us, it's a foot. That we would step in and use our stuff, use our gifts, use who we are. That our presence would be felt. That our glory would be felt here. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would connect us to our posse. We were made for it, and we need it. And we need the purpose that it gives. Hear us, in Jesus' name, amen. Again, thank you for coming. God loves you, and love your neighbor, and have a great rest of the week. Thank you.